1: Hello and welcome back to Eli Reads. This is Chapter 14, the penultimate chapter of Gustave Flaubert's Salambo. Now, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, you'll want to go back and start at Chapter 1. If you're already caught up, let's dive in. I'm not going to give you too much preamble. I just want to say that this chapter is about, well, it's about a lot of things, but one of the The real centerpiece of it is about this particular thing that happens in a kind of a box canyon called variously the the Pass of the Hatchet or the Defile of the Axe. And if any of you out there know where in modern day Tunisia this canyon actually is, I've always wondered what it would be like to go there and see it. I bet it's still there. So here it is, probably the most gruesome chapter in the entire book. Enjoy. Chapter 14, The Pass of the Hatchet. The Carthaginians had not re-entered their houses when the clouds accumulated more thickly. Those who raised their heads towards the Colossus could feel big drops on their foreheads. "'and the rain fell. "'It fell the whole night, "'plentifully, in floods. "'The thunder growled. "'It was the voice of Moloch. "'He had vanquished Tanit, "'and she, being now fecundated, "'opened up her vast bosom "'in heaven's heights. "'Sometimes she could be seen "'in a clear and luminous spot, "'stretched upon cushions of cloud, "'and then the darkness would close in again, "'as though she were still too weary.' and wished to sleep again. The Carthaginians all believing that water is brought forth by the moon, shouted to make her travail easy. The rain beat upon the terraces and overflowed them, forming lakes in the courts, cascades on the staircases, and eddies at the corners of the streets. It poured in warm, heavy masses and urgent streams. Big frothy jets leaped from the corners of all the buildings, and it seemed as though whitish cloths hung dimly upon the walls, and the washed temple roofs shone black in the gleam of the lightning. Torrents descended from the Acropolis by a thousand paths. Houses suddenly gave way, and small beams, plaster, rubbish, and furniture passed along in streams which ran impetuously over the pavement. Amphoras, Flagons and canvases had been placed out of doors, but the torches were extinguished. Brands were taken from the funeral pile of the ball, and the Carthaginians bent back their necks and opened their mouths to drink. Others, by the side of the miry pools, plunged their arms into them up to the armpits and filled themselves so abundantly with water that they vomited it forth like buffaloes. The freshness gradually spread, They breathed in the damp air with play of limb, and in the happiness of their intoxication boundless hope soon arose. All of their miseries were forgotten, and the country was born anew. They felt the need, as it were, of directing upon others the extravagant fury which they had been unable to employ against themselves. Such a sacrifice could not be in vain, although they felt no remorse they found themselves carried away by the frenzy which results from complicity in irreparable crimes. The barbarians had encountered the storm in their ill-closed tents, and they were still quite chilled on the morrow as they tramped through the mud in search of their stores and weapons, which were spoiled and lost. Hamilcar went himself to see Hanno, and in virtue of his plenary powers entrusted the command to him, The old Sufit hesitated for a few minutes between his animosity and his appetite for authority, but he accepted, nevertheless. Hamilcar next took out a galley, armed with a catapult at each end. He placed it in the gulf, in front of the raft. Then he embarked his stoutest troops on board such vessels as were available. He was apparently taking to flight and running northward before the wind he disappeared into the mist. But three days afterwards... When the attack was about to begin again, some people arrived tumultuously from the Libyan coast. Barca had come among them. He had carried off provisions everywhere, and he was spreading through the country. Then the barbarians were indignant, as though he were betraying them. Those who were most weary of the siege, and especially the Gauls, did not hesitate to leave the walls in order to try and rejoin him. Spendius wanted to reconstruct the Helepolis. Matho had traced an imaginary line from his tent to Megara and inwardly swore to follow it, and none of their men stirred. But the rest, under the command of Autoritus, went off, abandoning the western part of the rampart, and so profound was the carelessness exhibited that no one even thought of replacing them. Narhavas spied them from afar in the mountains. During the night he led all his men along the seashore on the outer side of the lagoon and entered Carthage. He presented himself as a savior, with six thousand men, all carrying meal under their cloaks, and forty elephants, laden with forage and dried meat. The people flocked quickly around them. They gave them names. The sight of these strong animals, sacred to Baal, gave the Carthaginians even more joy than the arrival of such relief. It was a token of the tenderness of the god a proof that he was at last about to interfere in the war to defend them. Narhavas received the compliments of the ancients, and then he ascended to Salambo's palace. He had not seen her again since the time when, in Hamilcar's tent, amid the five armies, he had felt her little, cold, soft hand fastened to his own. She had left for Carthage after the betrothal. His love, which had been diverted by other ambitions, had come back to him and now he expected to enjoy his rights, to marry her and take her. Salambo did not understand how the young man could ever become her master. Although she asked Tanet every day for Matho's death, her horror of the Libyan was growing less. She vaguely felt that the hate with which he had persecuted her was something almost religious, and she would fain have seen in Narhavas and she would fain have seen in Narhavas's person a reflection, as it were, of that malice, which still dazzled her. She desired to know him better, and yet his presence would have embarrassed her. She sent him word that she could not receive him. Moreover, Hamilcar had forbidden his people to admit the king of the Numidians to see her. By putting off his reward to the end of the war, he hoped to retain his devotion, and through dread of the Sufet, Narhavas withdrew. But he bore himself haughtily towards the hundred, he changed their arrangements. He demanded privileges for his men and placed them on important posts. Thus the barbarians stared when they perceived Numidians on the towers. The surprise of the Carthaginians was greater still when 300 of their own people, who had been made prisoners during the Sicilian War, arrived on board an old Punic trireme. Hamilcar, in fact, had secretly sent back to the Quirites the crews of the Latin vessels, taken before the defection of the Tyrian towns, and to reciprocate the courtesy, Rome was now sending him back, her captives. She scorned the overtures of the mercenaries in Sardinian, and would not even recognize the inhabitants of Utica as subjects. Hiero, who was ruling at Syracuse, was carried away by this example for the preservation of his own states, it was necessary that an equilibrium should exist between the two peoples. He was interested, therefore, in the safety of the Canaanites, and he declared himself their friend and sent them 1,200 oxen with 53,000 nebbles of pure wheat. A deeper reason prompted aid to Carthage. It was felt that if the mercenaries triumphed, everyone from soldier to plate washer would rise, and that no government and no house could resist them. Meanwhile, Hamilcar was scouring the eastern districts. He drove back the Gauls, and all the barbarians found that they were themselves in something like a state of siege. Then he set himself to harass them. He would arrive and then retire, and by constantly renewing this maneuver, he gradually detached them from their encampments. Spendius was obliged to follow them, and in the end Matho yielded in like manner. He did not pass beyond Tunis, He shut himself up within its walls. This persistence was full of wisdom, for soon Narhavas was to be seen, issuing from the gate of Camon with his elephants and soldiers. Hamilcar was recalling him, but the other barbarians were already wandering about in the provinces in pursuit of the Sufit. The latter had received 3,000 Gauls from Clepeia. He had horses brought to him from Cyrenica and armor from Brutium and began the war again. Never had his genius been so impetuous and fertile for five moons, he dragged his enemies after him. He had an end to which he wished to guide them. The barbarians had at first tried to encompass him with small detachments, but he always escaped them. They ceased to separate then. Their army amounted to about 40,000 men, and several times they enjoyed the sight of seeing the Carthaginians fall back. The horsemen of Narhavas were what they found most tormenting often at times of their greatest weariness, when they were advancing over the plains and dozing beneath the weight of their arms. A great line of dust would suddenly rise on the horizon. There would be a galloping up to them, and a rain of darts would pour from the bosom of a cloud filled with flaming eyes. The Numidians in their white cloaks would utter loud shouts, raise their arms, and press their rearing stallions with their knees, and, wheeling them round abruptly, would then disappear." They had always supplies of javelins and dromedaries some distance off, and they would return, more terrible than before, howl like wolves and take to flight like vultures. The barbarians posted at the extremities of the files fell one by one, and this would continue until evening, when an attempt would be made to enter the mountains. Although they were perilous for elephants, Hamilcar made his way in among them. "'He followed the long chain which extends from the promontory of Hermione to the top of Zaguan. "'This, they believed, was a device for hiding the insufficiency of his troops. "'But the continual uncertainty in which he kept them exasperated them at last more than any defeat. "'They did not lose heart and marched after him. "'At last, one evening, they surprised a body of Velites amid some big rocks at the entrance of a pass "'between the Silver Mountain and the Lead Mountain,' The entire army was certainly in front of them, for a noise of footsteps and clarions could be heard. The Carthaginians immediately fled through the gorge. It descended into a plain and was shaped like an iron hatchet with a surrounding of lofty cliffs. The barbarians dashed into it in order to overtake the Velites. Quite at the bottom, other Carthaginians were running tumultuously amid galloping oxen. A man in a red cloak was to be seen. It was the Sufit. They shouted this to one another, and they were carried away with increased fury and joy. Several, from laziness or prudence, had remained on the threshold of the pass. But some cavalry, debouching from a wood, beat them down upon the rest with blows of pikes and sabers. And soon all the barbarians were below in the plain. And then this great human mass, after swaying to and fro for some time, stood still they could discover no outlet. Those who were nearest to the pass went back again, but the passage had entirely disappeared. They hailed those in front to make them go on. They were being crushed against the mountain, and from a distance they inveighed against their companions, who were unable to find the route again. In fact, the barbarians had scarcely descended when men who had been crouching behind the rocks raised the ladder with beams and overthrew them, and as the slope was steep, The huge blocks had rolled down, pell-mell, and completely stopped up the narrow opening. At the other extremity of the plain stretched a long passage, split in gaps here and there, and leading to a ravine which ascended to the upper plateau where the Punic army was stationed. Ladders had been placed beforehand in this passage, against the wall of Cliff, and protected by the windings of the gaps, the Velites were able to seize and mount them before being overtaken— Several even made their way to the bottom of the ravine. They were drawn up with cables, for the ground at this spot was of moving sand, and so much inclined that it was impossible to climb it, even on the knees. The barbarians arrived almost immediately, but a portcullis, forty cubits high, and made to fit the intervening space exactly, suddenly sank before them like a rampart fallen from the skies. The Sufit's combinations had therefore succeeded None of the mercenaries knew the mountain, and marching as they did at the head of their columns they had drawn on the rest. The rocks, which were somewhat narrow at the base, had been easily cast down, and while all were running, his army had raised shouts as of distress on the horizon. Hamilcar, it is true, might have lost his Valites, only half of whom remained, but he would have sacrificed twenty times as many for the success of such an enterprise. The barbarians pressed forward until morning in compact files from one end of the plain to the other they felt the mountain with their hands seeking to discover a passage at last day broke and they perceived all about them a great white wall hewn with the pick and no means of safety no hope the two natural outcomes from this blind alley were closed by the portcullis and the heaps of rocks then they all looked at one another without speaking they sank down and collapsed feeling an icy coldness in their loins and an overwhelming weight upon their eyelids they rose and bounded against the rocks but the lowest were weighted by the pressure of the others and were immovable they tried to cling to them so as to reach the top but the bellying shape of the great masses rendered all hold impossible they sought to cleave the ground on both sides of the gorge but their instruments broke They made a large fire with the tent poles, but the fire could not burn the mountain. They returned to the portcullis. It was garnished with long nails as thick as stakes, as sharp as the spines of a porcupine, and closer than the hairs of a brush. But they were animated by such rage that they dashed themselves against it. The first were pierced to the backbone. Those coming next surged over them and all fell back, leaving human fragments and blood-stained hair on those horrible branches. When their discouragement was somewhat abated, they made an examination of the provisions. The mercenaries, whose baggage was lost, possessed scarcely enough for two days, and all the rest found themselves destitute, for they had been awaiting a convoy promised by the villages of the south. However, some bulls were roaming about, those which the Carthaginians had loosed in the gorge to attract the barbarians. They killed them with lance thrusts and ate them, and when their stomachs were filled, their thoughts were less mournful. The next day they slaughtered all the mules, to the number of about forty, and then they scraped the skins, boiled the entrails, pounded the bones, and did not yet despair. The army from Tunis had no doubt been warned and was coming, but on the evening of the fifth day their hunger increased. They gnawed their sword belts and the little sponges which bordered the bottom of their helmets. These forty thousand men were massed into the species of hippodrome formed by the mountain about them. Some remained in front of the portcullis or at the foot of the rocks. The rest covered the plain confusedly. Strong shunned one another, and the timid sought out the brave, who nevertheless were unable to save them. To avoid infection, the corpses of the Velites had been speedily buried, and the position of the graves was no longer visible. All the barbarians lay drooping on the ground. A veteran would pass between their lines here and there, and they would howl curses against the Carthaginians, against Hamilcar, and against Matho, although he was innocent of their disaster, but it seemed to him that their pains would have been less if he had shared them. Then they groaned, and some wept softly, like little children. They came to the captains and besought them to grant them something that would alleviate their sufferings. The others made no reply, or, seized with fury, would pick up a stone and fling it in their faces. Several, in fact, carefully kept a reserve of food in a hole in the ground— "'a few handfuls of dates, or a little meal, "'and they ate this during the night, "'with their heads bent beneath their cloaks. "'Those who had swords kept them naked in their hands, "'and the most suspicious remained standing, "'with their backs against the mountain. "'They accused their chiefs and threatened them. Autoritus was not afraid of showing himself. "'With the barbaric obstinacy which nothing could discourage, "'he would advance twenty times a day to the rocks at the bottom, "'hoping every time to find them perchance displaced.' and swaying his heavy, fur-covered shoulders, he reminded his companions of a bear coming forth from its cave in springtime to see whether the snows are melted. Spendius, surrounded by the Greeks, hid himself in one of the gaps. As he was afraid, he caused a rumor of his death to be spread. They were now hideously lean. Their skin was overlaid with bluish marblings. On the evening of the ninth day, three Iberians died. Their frightened companions left the spot. They were stripped, and the white naked bodies lay in the sunshine on the sand. Then the Garamantians began to prowl slowly round about them. They were men accustomed to existence in solitude, and they reverenced no god. At last, the oldest of the band made a sign, and bending over the corpses, they cut strips from them with their knives, squatted upon their heels, and ate. The rest looked on from a distance. They uttered cries of horror, many nevertheless being at the bottom of their souls, jealous of such courage. In the middle of the night some of these approached, and, dissembling their eagerness, asked for a small mouthful merely to try, they said. Bolder ones came up, their number increased, and soon there was a crowd. But almost all of them let their hands fall on feeling the cold flesh on the edge of their lips. Others, on the contrary, devoured it with delight. That they might be led away by example, they urged one another on, mutually. Such as had at first refused went to see the Garamantians, and returned no more. They cooked the pieces on coals at the point of the sword. They salted them with dust, and contended for the best morsels. When nothing was left of the three corpses, their eyes ranged over the whole plain to find others. But were they not in possession of Carthaginians? Twenty captives taken in the last encounter whom no one had noticed up to the present? These disappeared. Moreover, it was an act of vengeance. Then, as they must live, as the taste for this food had become developed, and as they were dying, they cut the throats of the water carriers, grooms, and all the serving men belonging to the mercenaries. They killed some of them every day. Some ate much, recovered strength, and were sad no more. Soon, this resource failed. Then the longing was directed to the wounded and the sick. Since they could not recover, it was as well to release them from their tortures, and as soon as a man began to stagger, all exclaimed that he was now lost and ought to be made use of for the rest. Artifices were employed to accelerate their death. The last remnant of their foul portion was stolen from them. They were trodden on, as though by inadvertence. Those in the last throes, wishing to make believe that they were strong, strove to stretch out their arms— to rise, to laugh. Men who had swooned came to themselves at the touch of a notched blade sawing off a limb, and they still slew, ferociously and needlessly, to sate their fury. A mist, heavy and warm, such as comes in those regions at the end of winter, sank on the fourteenth day upon the army. This change of temperature brought numerous deaths with it, and corruption was developed with frightful rapidity, in the warm dampness which was kept in by the sides of the mountain. The drizzle that fell upon the corpses softened them, and soon made the plain one broad tract of rottenness. Whitish vapors floated overhead. They pricked the nostrils, penetrated the skin, troubled the sight. And the barbarians thought that, through the exhalations of the breath, they could see the souls of their companions. They were overwhelmed, with immense disgust. They wished for nothing more they preferred to die. Two days afterwards, the weather became fine again, and hunger seized them once more. It seemed to them that their stomachs were being wrenched from them with tongs. Then they rolled about in convulsions, flung handfuls of dust into their mouths, bit their arms, and burst into frantic laughter. They were still more tormented by thirst, for they had not a drop of water, the leathern bottles having been completely dried up since the ninth day cheat their need, they applied their tongues to the metal plates on their waist belts, their ivory pommels, and the steel of their swords. Some former caravan leaders tightened their waists with ropes. Others sucked a pebble. They drank urine cooled in their brazen helmets. And they still expected the army from Tunis. The length of time which it took in coming was, according to their conjectures, an assurance of its early arrival. Besides, Matho, who was a brave fellow, would not desert them. "'Twill be tomorrow,' they would say to one another. And then tomorrow would pass. At the beginning, they had offered up prayers and vows, and practiced all kinds of incantations. Just now, their only feeling to their divinities was one of hatred, and they strove to revenge themselves by believing in them no more. Men of violent disposition perished first. The Africans held out better than the Gauls. Xarxas lay stretched at full length among the Balearans, his hair over his arm, inert. Spendius found a plant with broad leaves, filled abundantly with juice, and after declaring that it was poisonous so as to keep off the rest, he fed himself upon it. They were too weak to knock down the flying crows with stones. Sometimes when a japatis was perched on a corpse and had been mangling it for a long time, a man would set himself to crawl towards it with a javelin between his teeth. He would support himself with one hand, and after taking a good aim, throw his weapon. The white-feathered creature, disturbed by the noise, would desist and look about in tranquil fashion like a cormorant on a rock, and would then again thrust in its hideous yellow beak, while the man in despair would fall flat on his face in the dust. Some succeeded in discovering chameleons and serpents, but it was the love of life that kept them alive, that directed their souls to this idea exclusively, and clung to existence by an effort of the will that prolonged it the most stoical, kept close to one another, seated in a circle, here and there, among the dead in the middle of the plain, and wrapped in their cloaks, they gave themselves up silently to their sadness. Those who had been born in towns recalled the resounding streets, the taverns, theaters, baths, and barber shops where their tales to be heard. Others could once more see country districts at sunset, the yellow corn waves, and the great oxen ascend the hills again, with the plowshares on their necks. Travelers dreamed of cisterns, hunters of their forests, veterans of battles, and in the somnolence that benumbed them, their thoughts jostled one another with the precipitancy and clearness of dreams. Hallucinations came suddenly upon them. They sought for a door in the mountain in order to flee and tried to pass through it. Others thought that they were sailing in a storm and gave orders for the handling of a ship, or else fall back in terror, perceiving Punic battalions in the clouds. There were some who imagined themselves at a feast, and sang. Many, through a strange mania, would repeat the same word, or continually make the same gesture. Then, when they happened to raise their heads and look at one another, they were choked with sobs on discovering the horrible ravages made in their faces. Some had ceased to suffer and to while away the hours, told of the perils which they had escaped. Death was certain, and imminent to all. How many times had they not tried to open up a passage, as to implore terms from the conqueror By what means could they do so? They did not even know where Helmachar was. The wind was blowing from the direction of the ravine. It made the sand flow perpetually in cascades over the portcullis, and the cloaks and hair of the barbarians were being covered with it, as though the earth were rising upon them. And desirous of burying them. Nothing stirred. The eternal mountains seemed still higher to them every morning. Sometimes flights of birds started past beneath the blue sky and the freedom of the air. The men closed their eyes that they might not see them. At first, they felt a buzzing in their ears. Their nails grew black. The cold reached their breasts. They lay upon their sides and expired without a cry. On the 19th day, 2,000 Asiatics were dead, with 1,500 from the archipelago, 8,000 from Libya, the youngest of the mercenaries and whole tribes, and all 20,000 soldiers, or half the army. Autoritus, who had only 50 Gauls left, was going to kill himself in order to put an end to this state of things, when he thought he saw a man on the top of the mountain in front of him. Owing to his elevation, this man did not appear taller than a dwarf. However, Autoritus recognized a shield shaped like a trefoil on his left arm. A Carthaginian! he exclaimed. And immediately, throughout the plain, before the portcullis and beneath the rocks, all rose. The soldier was walking along the edge of the precipice. The barbarians gazed at him from below. Spendius picked up the head of an ox, and then having formed a diadem with two belts fixed it on the horns at the end of a pole in token of pacific intentions the Carthaginian disappeared they waited at last in the evening a sword belt suddenly fell from above like a stone loosened from the cliff it was made of red leather covered with embroidery with three diamond stars and stamped in the center it bore the mark of the great council a horse beneath a palm tree This was Hamilcar's reply, the safe conduct that he sent them. They had nothing to fear. Any change of fortune brought with it the end of their woes. They were moved with extravagant joy. They embraced one another. They wept. Spendius, Autoritus, and Xarxes, four Italiots, a negro, and two Spartans, offered themselves as envoys. They were immediately accepted. They did not know, however, by what means they should get away. But a cracking sounded in the direction of the rocks, and the most elevated of them, after rocking to and fro, rebounded to the bottom. In fact, if they were immovable on the side of the barbarians, for it would have been necessary to urge them up an inclined plane, and they were moreover heaped together, owing to the narrowness of the gorge, on the others, on the contrary, it was sufficient to drive against them with violence to make them descend. The Carthaginians pushed them, and at daybreak they projected into the plain, like the steps of an immense ruined staircase. The barbarians were still unable to climb them. Ladders were held out for their assistance. All rushed upon them. The discharge of a catapult drove the crowd back. Only the ten were taken away. They walked amid the Clinibarians, leaning their hands on the horses' croups for support. Now that their first joy was over, they began to harbor anxieties. Hamilcar's demands would be cruel. But Spendius reassured them. "'I will speak!' And he boasted that he knew excellent things to say for the safety of the army. Behind all the bushes, they met with ambushed sentries who prostrated themselves before the sword belt which Spendius had placed over his shoulder. When they reached the Punic camp, the crowd flocked around them, and they thought that they could hear whisperings and laughter. The door of a tent opened. Hamilcar was at the very back of it, seated on a stool, beside a table, on which there shone a naked sword. He was surrounded by captains who were standing. He started back on perceiving these men, and then bent over, and then bent over to examine them. Their pupils were strangely dilated, and there was a great black circle round their eyes, which extended to the lower parts of their ears. Their bluish noses stood out between their hollow cheeks, which were chinked with deep wrinkles. The skin of their bodies was too large for their muscles and was hidden beneath a slate-colored dust. Their lips were glued to their yellow teeth. They exhaled an infectious odor. They might have been taken for half-open tombs, for living sepulchres. In the center of the tent, on a mat on which the captains were about to sit down, there was a dish of smoking gourds. The barbarians fastened their eyes upon it with a shivering in all their limbs— and tears came to their eyelids. Nevertheless, they restrained themselves. Hamilcar turned away to speak to someone, and they all flung themselves upon it, flat on the ground. Their faces were soaked in the fat, and the noise of their deglutition was mingled with the sobs of joy, which they uttered through astonishment. Doubtless, rather than pity, they were allowed to finish the mess. And when they had risen, Hamilcar, with a sign, commanded the man who bore the sword belt to speak. Spendius was afraid. He stammered. Hamilcar, while listening to him, kept turning round on his finger a big gold ring, the same which had stamped the seal of Carthage upon the sword belt. He let it fall to the ground. Spendius immediately picked it up. His servile habits came back to him in the presence of his master. The others quivered with indignation at such baseness. But the Greek raised his voice and spoke for a long time, in rapid, insidious, and even violent fashion, setting forth the crimes of Hanno, whom he knew to be Barca's enemy, and striving to move Hamilcar's pity by the details of their miseries and the recollection of their devotion. In the end, he became forgetful of himself, being carried away by the warmth of his temper. Hamilcar replied that he accepted their excuses. Peace, then, was about to be concluded, and now it would be a definitive one. But he required that ten mercenaries, chosen by himself, should be delivered up to him, without weapons or tunics. They had not expected such clemency. Spendius exclaimed, Ah, twenty if you wish, master! No, ten will suffice, replied Hamilcar quietly. They were sent out of the tent to deliberate. As soon as they were alone, Autoritus protested against the sacrifice of their companions, and Xarxes said to Spendius, Why did you not kill him? His sword was there beside you. Him, said Spendius, him, him, he repeated several times as though the thing had been impossible and Hamilcar were an immortal. They were so overwhelmed with weariness that they stretched themselves on their backs on the ground, not knowing at what resolution to arrive. Spendius urged them to yield. At last they consented and went in again. Then the Sufit put his hand into the hands of the ten barbarians, in turn, and pressed their thumbs. Then he rubbed it on his garment, for their viscous skin gave a rude, soft impression to the touch, a greasy tingling which induced horripilation. Afterwards he said to them, "'You are really all the chiefs of the barbarians, and you have sworn for them?' "'Yes,' they replied, "'without constraint, from the bottom of your souls, with the intention of fulfilling your promises.' They assured him that they were returning to the rest in order to fulfill them. Well, rejoined the Sufid. In accordance with the convention concluded between myself, Barca, and the ambassadors of the mercenaries, it is you whom I choose and shall keep. Spendius fell, swooning upon the mat. The barbarians, as though abandoning him, pressed close together, and there was not a word, not a complaint. Their companions, who were waiting for them, not seeing them return, believed themselves betrayed. The envoys had no doubt given themselves up to the Sufit. They waited for two days longer. Then on the morning of the 3rd, their resolution was taken. With ropes, picks, and arrows arranged like rungs between strips of canvas, they succeeded in scaling the rocks. And leaving the weakest, about 3,000 in number, behind them, they began their march to rejoin the army at Tunis. Above the gorge, there stretched a meadow, thinly sown with shrubs. The barbarians devoured the buds. Afterwards, they found a field of beans, and everything disappeared, as though a cloud of grasshoppers had passed that way. Three hours later, they reached a second plateau, bordered by a belt of green hills. Among the undulations of these hillocks, Silvery sheaves shone at intervals from one another. The barbarians, who were dazzled by the sun, could perceive confusedly below great black masses supporting them. These rose as though they were expanding. They were lances in towers on elephants, terribly armed. Besides the spears on their breasts... The bodkin tusks, the brass plates which covered their sides, and the daggers fastened to their kneecaps, they had at the extremity of their tusks a leathern bracelet in which the handle of a broad cutlass was inserted. They had set out simultaneously from the back part of the plain and were advancing on both sides in parallel lines. The barbarians were frozen with a nameless terror. They did not even try to flee. They already found themselves surrounded. The elephants entered into this mass of men, and the spurs on their breasts divided it. The lances on their tusks upturned it like plowshares. They cut, hewed, and hacked with the scythes on their trunks. The towers, which were full of phalaricas, looked like volcanoes on the march. Nothing could be distinguished but a large heap, whereon human flesh pieces of brass and blood made white spots gray sheets and red fuses. The horrible animals dug out black furrows as they passed through the midst of it all. The fiercest was driven by a Numidian who was crowned with a diadem of plumes. He hurled javelins with frightful quickness, giving at intervals a long, shrill whistle. The great beasts, docile as dogs, kept an eye on him during the carnage. The circle of them narrowed by degrees. The weakened barbarians offered no resistance, The elephants were soon in the center of the plain. They lacked space. They thronged, half-rearing together, and their tusks clashed against one another. Suddenly Narhavas quieted them, and wheeling round, they trotted back to the hills. Two Syntagmata, however, had taken refuge on the right in a bend of ground, had thrown away their arms, and were kneeling with their faces towards the Punic tents, imploring mercy with uplifted arms. Their legs and hands were tied, then when they were stretched on the ground beside one another, the elephants were brought back. Their breasts cracked like boxes being forced. Two were crushed at every step. The big feet sank into the bodies with a motion of the haunches, which made the elephants appear lame. They went on to the very end. The level surface of the plain again became motionless. Night fell. Hamilcar was delighting himself with the spectacle of his vengeance. But suddenly he started. He saw, and all saw, some more barbarians. Six hundred paces to the left on the summit of a peak? In fact, four hundred of the stoutest mercenaries, Etruscans, Libyans, and Spartans, had gained the heights at the beginning and had remained there in uncertainty until now. After the massacre of their companions— They resolved to make their way through the Carthaginians. They were already descending, in serried columns, in a marvelous and formidable fashion. A herald was immediately dispatched to them. The Sufit needed soldiers. He received them unconditionally, so greatly did he admire their bravery. They could even, said the man of Carthage, come a little nearer to a place, which he pointed out to them, where they would find provisions. The barbarians ran thither and spent the night in eating. Then the Carthaginians broke into clamors against the Sufis' partiality for the mercenaries. Did he yield to these outbursts of insatiable hatred? Or was it a refinement of treachery? The next day he came himself, without a sword and bareheaded, with an escort of clinabarians, and announced to them that having too many to feed, he did not intend to keep them. Nevertheless, as he wanted men, and he knew of no means of selecting the good ones— They were to fight together to the death. He would then admit the conquerors into his own bodyguard. This death was quite as good as another. And then moving his soldiers aside, for the Punic standards hid the horizon from the mercenaries, he showed them the 192 elephants under Narhavas, forming a single straight line, their trunks brandishing broad steel blades like giant arms holding axes above their heads. The barbarians looked at one another silently. It was not death that made them turn pale, but the horrible compulsion to which they found themselves reduced. The community of their lives had brought about profound friendship among these men. The camp, with most, took the place of their country. Living without a family, they transferred the needful tenderness to a companion, and they would fall asleep in the starlight, side by side, under the same cloak. And then, in their perpetual wanderings through all sorts of countries, murders, and adventures, they had contracted affections, one for the other, in which the stronger protected the younger in the midst of battles, helped him to cross precipices, sponged the sweat of fevers from his brow, and stole food for him. And the weaker, a child perhaps, who had been picked up on the roadside and had then become a mercenary, repaid this devotion by a thousand kindnesses. They exchanged their necklaces and earrings, presents which they had made to one another in former days, after great peril or in hours of intoxication.
0: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. For free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: All asked to die, and none would strike. A young fellow might be seen here and there, saying to another whose beard was gray, No, no, you are more robust. You will avenge us. Kill me! And the man would reply, I have fewer years to live. Strike to the heart and think no more about it. Brothers gazed on one another with clasped hands and friend bade friend eternal farewells, standing and weeping upon his shoulder. They threw off their cuirasses that the sword points might be thrust in the more quickly, and then there appeared the marks of the great blows which they had received for Carthage, and which looked like inscriptions on columns. They placed themselves in four equal ranks after the fashion of gladiators, and began with timid engagements. Some had even bandaged their eyes, and their swords waved gently through the air like blind men's sticks. The Carthaginians hooted and shouted to them that they were cowards. The barbarians became animated, and soon the combat was general, headlong, and terrible. Sometimes two men, all covered with blood, would stop, fall into each other's arms, and die with mutual kisses. None drew back. They rushed upon the extended blades. Their delirium was so frenzied that the Carthaginians in the distance were afraid. At last they stopped. Their breasts made a great hoarse noise, and their eyeballs could be seen through their long hair, which hung down as though it had come out of a purple bath. Several were turning round rapidly like panthers wounded in the forehead. Others stood motionless, looking at a corpse at their feet. Then they would suddenly tear their faces with their nails. Take their swords with both hands, and plunge them into their own bodies. There were still sixty left. They asked for drink. They were told by shouts to throw away their swords, and when they had done so, water was brought to them. While they were drinking, with their faces buried in the vases, sixty Carthaginians leaped upon them and killed them with stilettos in the back. Hamilcar had done this to gratify the instincts of his army and by means of this treachery to attach it to his own person. The war then was ended. At least he believed that it was. Matho would not resist. In his impatience, the Sufit commanded an immediate departure. His scouts came to tell him that a convoy had been descried, departing towards the Lead Mountain. Hamilcar did not trouble himself about it. The mercenaries once annihilated the nomads would give him no further trouble. The important matter was to take Tunis— He advanced by forced marches upon it. He had sent Narhavas to Carthage with news of his victory, and the king of the Numidians, proud of his success, visited Salambo. She received him in her gardens, under a large sycamore tree, amid pillows of yellow leather, and with Tanak beside her. Her face was covered with a white scarf, which, passing over her mouth and forehead, allowed only her eyes to be seen. But her lips shone in the transparency of the tissue, like the gems on her fingers. For Salambo had both her hands wrapped up, and did not make a gesture during the whole conversation. Narhavas announced the defeat of the barbarians to her. She thanked him, with a blessing, for the services which he had rendered to her father. Then he began to tell her about the whole campaign. The doves on the palm trees around them cooed softly. And other birds fluttered amid the grass. Ring necked glariolas, tartessus quails, and punic guinea fowl. The garden, long uncultivated, had multiplied its verdure. Colinquintidas mounted into the branches of cassias. The Asclepias was scattered over fields of roses. All kinds of vegetation formed entwinings and bowers, and here and there, as in the woods, sun rays. Descending obliquely marked the shadow of a leaf upon the ground. Domestic animals, grown wild again, fled at the slightest noise. Sometimes a gazelle might be seen trailing scattered peacock's feathers after its little black hoofs. The clamors of the distant town were lost in the murmuring of the waves. The sky was quite blue, and not a sail was visible on the sea. Narhavas had ceased speaking. Salamba was looking at him, without replying. He wore a linen robe with flowers painted on it and with gold fringes at the hem. Two silver arrows fastened his plaited hair at the tips of his ears, and his right hand rested on a pike staff adorned with circles of electrum and tufts of hair. As she watched him, a crowd of dim thoughts absorbed her. This young man, with his gentle voice and feminine figure, captivated her eyes by the grace of his person, and seemed to her like an elder sister sent by the balls to protect her. The recollection of Matho came upon her, nor did she resist the desire to learn what had become of him. Norhavas replied that the Carthaginians were advancing towards Tunis to take it, in proportion as he set forth their chances of success and Matho's weaknesses, She seemed to rejoice in extraordinary hope. Her lips trembled. Her breast panted. When he finally promised to kill him himself, she exclaimed, Yes, kill him. It must be so. The Numidian replied that he desired this death ardently, since he would be her husband when the war was over. Salambo started and bent her head. But Narhavas, pursuing the subject, compared his longings to flowers languishing for rain or to lost travelers waiting for the day. He told her further that she was more beautiful than the moon, better than the wind of morning, or than the face of a guest. He would bring for her from the country of the blacks things such as there were none in Carthage, and the apartments in their house should be sanded with gold dust. Evening fell, and odors of balsam were exhaled. For a long time they looked at each other in silence, and Salambo's eyes in the depths of her long draperies resembled two stars in the rift of a cloud. Before the sun set, he withdrew. The ancients felt themselves relieved of a great anxiety when he left Carthage. The people had received him with even more enthusiastic acclamations than on the first occasion. If Hamilcar and the king of the Numidians triumphed alone over the mercenaries, it would be impossible to resist them. To weaken Barca, they therefore resolved to make the aged Hanno, him whom they loved, a sharer in the deliverance of Carthage. He proceeded immediately towards the western provinces to take his vengeance in the very places which had witnessed his shame. But the inhabitants and the barbarians were dead, hidden, or fled. Then his anger was vented upon the country. He burnt the ruins of the ruins. He did not leave a single tree nor a blade of grass. The children and the infirm that were met with were tortured. He gave the women to his soldiers to be violated before they were slaughtered. Often on the crests of the hills, black tents were struck as though overturned by the winds and the broad, brilliantly-bordered discs, which were recognized as being chariot wheels, revolved with a plaintive sound as they gradually disappeared in the valleys. The tribes which had abandoned the siege of Carthage were wandering in this way through the provinces, waiting for an opportunity or for some victory to be gained by the mercenaries in order to return. But, whether from terror or famine, they all took the roads to their native lands and disappeared. Hamilcar was not jealous of Hanno's successes. Nevertheless, he was in a hurry to end matters. He commanded him to fall back upon Tunis, and Hanno, who loved his country, was under the walls of the town on the appointed day. For its protection, it had its aboriginal population, 12,000 mercenaries, and in addition, all the eaters of uncleanness, for, like Matho, they were riveted to the horizon of Carthage, and plebs and shahalashim Gazed at its lofty walls from afar, looking back in thought to boundless enjoyments. With this harmony of hatred, resistance was briskly organized. Leathern bottles were taken to make helmets. All the palm trees in the gardens were cut down for lances. Cisterns were dug, while for provisions they caught on the shores of the lake, big white fish fed on corpses and filth. Their ramparts, kept in ruins now by the jealousy of Carthage, were so weak that they could be thrown down with the push of the shoulder. Mathos stopped up the holes in them with the stones of the houses. It was the last struggle. He hoped for nothing. And yet he told himself that fortune was fickle. As the Carthaginians approached, they noticed a man on the rampart who towered over the battlements from his belt upwards. The arrows that flew about him seemed to frighten him no more than a swarm of swallows, Extraordinary to say, none of them touched him. Hamilcar pitched his camp on the south side, Narhavas to his right occupied the plain of Rades, and Hanno, the shore of the lake, and the three generals were to maintain their respective positions, so as all to attack the walls simultaneously. But Hamilcar wished first to show the mercenaries that he would punish them like slaves. He had the ten ambassadors crucified beside one another, on a hillock, in front of the town. At the sight of this, the besieged forsook the rampart. Matho had said to himself that if he could pass between the walls and Narhavis's tents with such rapidity that the Numidians had not time to come out, he could fall upon the rear of the Carthaginian infantry, who would be caught between his division and those inside. He dashed out with his veterans. Narhavas perceived him. He crossed the shore of the lake and came to warn Hanno to dispatch men to Hamilcar's assistance. Did he believe Barca too weak to resist the mercenaries? Was it a piece of treachery or folly? Well, no one could ever learn. Hanno, desiring to humiliate his rival, did not hesitate. He shouted orders to sound the trumpets, and his whole army rushed upon the barbarians. The latter returned and ran straight against the Carthaginians. They knocked them down, crushed them under their feet, and, driving them back in this way, reached the tent of Hanno, who was then surrounded by thirty Carthaginians, the most illustrious of the ancients. He appeared stupefied by their audacity. He called out for his captains. Every one thrust his fist under his throat, vociferating abuse. The crowd pressed on, and those who had their hands on him could scarce retain their hold. However, he tried to whisper to them, I will give you whatever you want. I'm rich. Save me. They dragged him along. Heavy as he was, his feet did not touch the ground. The ancients had been carried off. His terror increased. You have beaten me. I'm your captive. I will ransom myself. Listen to me, my friends. And borne along by all those shoulders which were pressed against his sides, he repeated, What are you going to do? What do you want? You can see that I am not obstinate. I've always been good-natured. A gigantic cross stood at the gate. The barbarians howled. Here! Here! But he raised his voice still higher, and in the names of their gods he called upon them to lead him to the Shahashim, because he wished to confide to him something on which their safety depended. They paused, some asserting that it was right to summon Matho, he was sent for, Hanno fell upon the grass, and he saw around him other crosses also, as though the torture by which he was about to perish had been multiplied beforehand. He made efforts to convince himself that he was mistaken, that there was only one, and even to believe that there were none at all. At last he was lifted up. Speak, said Matho. He offered to give up Hamilcar. Then they would enter Carthage and both be kings. Matho withdrew, signing to the others to make haste. It was a stratagem, he thought, to gain time. The barbarian was mistaken. Hanno was in an extremity when consideration is had to nothing, and moreover he so execrated Hamilcar that he would have sacrificed him and all his soldiers on the slightest hope of safety. The ancients were languishing on the ground, the foot of the crosses, ropes had already been passed beneath their armpits. Then the old Sufit, understanding that he must die, wept. They tore off the clothes that were still left on him, and the horror of his person appeared. Ulcers covered the nameless mass. The fat on his legs hid the nails on his feet. From his fingers there hung what looked like greenish strips, and the tears streaming through the tubercles on his cheeks gave to his face an expression of frightful sadness, for they seemed to take up more room than on another human face. His royal fillet, which was half-unfastened, trailed with his white hair in the dust. They thought that they had no rope strong enough to haul him up to the top of the cross, and they nailed him upon it after the Punic fashion, before it was erected. But his pride awoke in his pain. He began to overwhelm them with abuse. He foamed and twisted, like a marine monster being slaughtered on the shore, and predicted that they would all end more horribly still, and that he would be avenged. He was. On the other side of the town, whence there now escaped jets of flame with columns of smoke, the ambassadors from the mercenaries were in their last throes. Some who had swooned at first had just revived in the freshness of the wind, but their chins still rested upon their breasts. Their bodies had fallen somewhat in spite of the nails in their arms, which were fastened higher than their heads, From their heels and hands, blood fell in big, slow drops as ripe fruit falls from the branches of a tree. And Carthage, gulf, mountains, and plains all appeared to them to be revolving like an immense wheel. Sometimes a cloud of dust rising from the ground enveloped them in its eddies. They burned with horrible thirst, their tongues curled in their mouths, and they felt an icy sweat flowing over them. With their departing souls. Nevertheless, they had glimpses at an infinite depth of streets, marching soldiers, and the swinging of swords, and the tumult of battle reached them dimly like the noise of the sea to shipwrecked men dying on the masts of a ship. The Italiots, who were sturdier than the rest, were still shrieking. The Lacedaemonians were silent, with eyelids closed. Xarxas, once so vigorous, was bending like a broken reed. The Ethiopian beside him had his head thrown back over the arms of the cross. Autoritus was motionless, rolling his eyes. His great head of hair, caught in a cleft of the wood, fell straight upon his forehead, and his death-rattle seemed rather to be a roar of anger. As to Spendius, a strange courage had come to him. He despised life now, in the certainty which he possessed of an almost immediate and an eternal emancipation and he awaited death with impassibility. Amid their swooning, they sometimes started at the brushing of feathers passing across their lips. Large wings swung shadows around them. Croakings sounded in the air. And as Spendius's cross was the highest, it was upon his that the first vulture alighted. Then he turned his face towards Autoritus and said slowly to him, with an unaccountable smile, do you remember the lions on the road to Sicca? They were our brothers, replied the Gaul, as he expired. The Sufit, meanwhile, had bored through the walls and reached the citadel. The smoke suddenly disappeared before a gust of wind, discovering the horizon as far as the walls of Carthage. He even thought that he could distinguish people watching on the platform of Eshmoon. Then, bringing back his eyes, he perceived thirty crosses of extravagant size on the shore of the lake to the left. In fact, to render them still more frightful, they had been constructed with tent poles fastened end to end, and the thirty corpses of the ancients appeared high up in the sky. They had what looked like white butterflies in their breasts. These were the feathers of the arrows which had been shot at them from below. A broad gold ribbon shone on the summit of the highest. It hung down to the shoulder, there being no arm on that side, and Hamilcar had some difficulty in recognizing Hanno. His spongy bones had given way under the iron pins. Portions of his limbs had come off, and nothing was left on the cross but shapeless remains, like the fragments of animals that are hung up on huntsmen's doors. The Sufit could not have known anything about it. The town in front of him masked everything that was beyond and behind, and the captains who had been successively sent to the two generals had not reappeared. Then fugitives arrived, with the tale of the rout, and the Punic army halted, This catastrophe, falling upon them as it did in the midst of their victory, stupefied them. Hamilcar's orders were no longer listened to. Matho took advantage of this to continue his ravages among the Numidians. Hanno's camp having been overthrown, he had returned against them. The elephants came out, but the mercenaries advanced through the plain, shaking about flaming firebrands which they had plucked from the walls, and the great beasts in fright ran headlong into the gulf, where they killed one another in their struggles or were drowned beneath the weight of their queer asses. had already launched his cavalry. All threw themselves face downwards upon the ground. Then, when the horses were within three paces of them, they sprang beneath their bellies, ripped them open with dagger strokes, and half the Numidians had perished when Barka came up. The exhausted mercenaries could not withstand his troops. They retired in good order to the mountain of the hot springs. The Sufit was prudent enough not to pursue them. He directed his course to the mouths of the Makaras. "'Tunis was his, but it was now nothing but a heap of smoking rubbish. "'The ruins fell through the breaches in the wall to the center of the plain, "'quite in the background between the shores of the gulf, "'the corpses of the elephants, drifting before the wind, conflicted, "'like an archipelago of black rocks floating on the water. "'Narhavis had drained his forest of these animals, "'taking young and old, male and female, to keep up the war.' and the military force of his kingdom could not repair the loss. The people who had seen them perishing at a distance were grieved at it. Men lamented in the streets, calling them by their names, like deceased friends. Ah, The Invincible! The Victory! The Thunderer! The Swallow! On the first day, too, there was no talk except of the dead citizens. But on the morrow, the tents of the mercenaries were seen on the mountain of the Hot Springs, and then so deep was the despair that many people, especially women, flung themselves headlong from the top of the Acropolis. Hamilcar's designs were not known. He lived alone in his tent, with none near him but a young boy, and no one ever ate with them, not even Narhavas. Nevertheless, he showed great deference to the latter after Hanno's defeat, but... The king of the Numidians had too great an interest in becoming his son not to distrust him. This inertness veiled skillful maneuvers. Hamilcar seduced the heads of the villages by all sorts of artifices, and the mercenaries were hunted, repulsed, and enclosed like wild beasts. As soon as they entered a wood, the trees caught fire around them. When they drank of a spring, it was poisoned. The caves in which they hid in order to sleep were walled up. Their old accomplices, the populations who had hitherto defended them now pursued them, and they continually recognized Carthaginian armor in these bands. Many had their faces consumed with red tetters, This, they thought, had come to them through touching Hanno. Others imagined that it was because they had eaten Salambo's fishes, and far from repenting of it, they dreamed of even more abominable sacrileges, so that the abasement of the Punic gods might still be greater. They would fain have exterminated them. In this way, they lingered for three months along the eastern coast, and then behind the mountain of Saloon, and as far as the first sands of the desert. They sought for a place of refuge, no matter where. Utica and Zoritis alone had not betrayed them, but Hamilcar was encompassing these two towns. Then they went northwards at haphazard, without even knowing the various routes. Their many miseries had confused their understandings. The only feeling left them was one of exasperation, which went on developing. And one day they found themselves again in the gorges of Cobus, and once more before Carthage. Then the actions multiplied. Fortune remained equal, but both sides were so wearied that they would willingly have exchanged these skirmishes for a great battle, provided that it were really the last. Matho was inclined to carry this proposal himself to the Sufid. One of his Libyans devoted himself for the purpose— all were convinced, as they saw him depart, that he would not return. He returned the same evening. Hamilcar accepted the challenge. The encounter should take place the following day, at sunrise, in the plain of Raides. The mercenaries wished to know whether he had said anything more, and the Libyan added, As I remained in his presence, he asked me what I was waiting for. To be killed, I replied. Then he rejoined, No, be gone. That will be tomorrow, with the rest. This generosity astonished the barbarians. Some were terrified by it, and Matho regretted that the emissary had not been killed. He still had remaining 3,000 Africans, 1,200 Greeks, 1,500 Campanians, 200 Iberians, 400 Etruscans, 500 Samnites, 40 Gauls, and a troop of nafours, nomad bandits, met with in the date region. In all, 7,219 soldiers. But not one complete syntagmata. They had stopped up the holes in their cuirasses with the shoulder blades of quadrupeds, and replaced their brass catherny with worn sandals. Their garments were weighted with copper or steel plates. Their coats of mail hung in tatters about them, and scars appeared like purple threads through the hair on their arms and faces. The wraiths of their dead companions came back to their souls and increased their energy. They felt in a confused way that they were the ministers of a god diffused in the hearts of the oppressed, and were the pontiffs, so to speak, of universal vengeance. Then they were enraged with grief at what was extravagant injustice, and above all, by the sight of Carthage on the horizon. They swore an oath to fight for one another until death. The beasts of burden were killed, and as much as possible was eaten so as to gain strength. Afterwards they slept. Some prayed, turning towards different constellations. The Carthaginians arrived first, in the plain. They rubbed the edges of their shields with oil to make the arrows glide off them easily. The foot soldiers, who wore long hair, took the precaution of cutting it on the forehead, and Hamilcar ordered all bowls to be inverted from the fifth hour knowing that it is disadvantageous to fight with the stomach too full. His army amounted to 14,000 men, or about double the number of the barbarians. Nevertheless, he had never felt such anxiety. If he succumbed, it would mean the annihilation of the Republic, and he would perish on the cross. If, on the contrary, he triumphed, he would reach Italy by way of the Pyrenees. The Gauls and the Alps and the empire of the Barkas would become eternal. Twenty times during the night, he rose to inspect everything himself, down to the most trifling details. As to the Carthaginians, well, they were exasperated by their lengthened terror. Narhavus suspected the fidelity of his Numidians. Moreover, the barbarians might vanquish them. A strange weakness had come upon him. Every moment he drank large cups of water. But a man whom he did not know opened his tent and laid on the ground a crown of rock salt, adorned with hieratic designs formed with sulfur and lozenges of mother-of-pearl. A marriage crown was sometimes sent to a betrothed husband. It was a proof of love, a sort of invitation. Nevertheless, Hamilcar's daughter had no tenderness for Narhavis. The recollection of Matho disturbed her in an intolerable manner. It seemed to her that the death of this man would unburden her thoughts, just as people, to cure themselves of the bite of a viper, crush it upon the wound. The king of the Numidians was depending upon her. He awaited the wedding with impatience, and as it was to follow the victory, Salambo made him this present, to stimulate his courage. Then his distress vanished and he thought only of the happiness of possessing so beautiful a woman. The same vision had assailed Matho, but he cast it from him immediately, and his love that he thrust back was poured out upon his companions in arms. He cherished them like portions of his own person, of his hatred, and he felt his spirit higher and his arms stronger. Everything that he was to accomplish appeared clearly before him. If size sometimes escaped him, it was because he was thinking of Spendius. He drew up the barbarians in six equal ranks. He posted the Etruscans in the center, all being fastened to a bronze chain. The archers were behind, and on the wings he distributed the nafers, who were mounted on short-haired camels, covered with ostrich feathers. The Sufet arranged the Carthaginians in similar order. He placed the Clinibarians outside the infantry, next to the Velites, and the Numidians beyond. When day appeared, both sides were thus in line, face to face, all gazed at each other from a distance, with round, fierce eyes. There was at first some hesitation. At last both armies moved. The barbarians advanced slowly, so as not to become out of breath, beating the ground with their feet. The center of the Punic army formed a convex curve. Then came the burst of a terrible shock, like the crash of two fleets in a collision. The first rank of the barbarians had quickly opened up, and the marksmen, hidden behind the others, discharged their bullets, arrows, and javelins. The curve of the Carthaginians, however, flattened by degrees, became quite straight, and then bent inwards. Upon this, the two sections of the Velites drew together in parallel lines, like the legs of a compass that is being closed. The barbarians, who were attacking the phalanx with fury, entered the gap. They were being lost. Matho checked them, and while the Carthaginian wings continued to advance, he drew out the three inner ranks of his line. They soon covered his flanks, and his army appeared in triple array. But the barbarians placed at the extremities were the weakest, especially those on the left who had exhausted their quivers, and the troop of Velites, which had at last come up against them, was cutting them up greatly. Matho made them fall back. His right comprised companions who were armed with axes. He hurled them against the Carthaginian left— The center attacked the enemy, and those at the other extremity who were out of peril kept the Velites at a distance. Then Hamilcar divided his horsemen into squadrons, placed hoplites between them, and sent them against the mercenaries. Those cone-shaped masses presented a front of horses, and their broader sides were filled and bristling with lances. The barbarians found it impossible to resist. The Greek foot soldiers alone had brazen armor. All the rest had cutlasses on the end of poles, scythes taken from the farms, or swords manufactured out of the fellies of wheels. The soft blades were twisted by a blow, and while they were engaged in straightening them under their heels, the Carthaginians massacred them, right and left, at their ease. But the Etruscans, riveted to their chain, did not stir. Those who were dead, being prevented from falling, formed an obstruction with their corpses, And the great bronze line widened and contracted in turn, as supple as a serpent and as impregnable as a wall. The barbarians would come to reform behind it, pant for a minute, and then set off again with the fragments of their weapons in their hands. Many had already none left, and they leaped upon the Carthaginians, biting their faces like dogs. The Gauls, in their pride, stripped themselves of the sagum. They showed their great white bodies from a distance, and they enlarged their wounds to terrify the enemy. The voice of the crier announcing the orders could no longer be heard in the midst of the Punic Syntagmata. Their signals were being repeated by the standards, which were raised above the dust, and everyone was swept away in the swaying of the great mass that surrounded him. Hamilcar commanded the Numidians to advance, but the nephurs rushed to meet them. Clad in vast black robes with a tuft of hair on the top of the skull and a shield of rhinoceros leather, they wielded a steel which had no handle and which they held by a rope, and their camels, which bristled all over with feathers, uttered long, hoarse cluckings. Each blade fell on a precise spot, then rose again with a smart stroke, carrying off a limb with it. The fierce beasts galloped through the syntagmata. Some, whose legs were broken, went hopping along like wounded ostriches. The Punic infantry turned in a body upon the barbarians and cut them off. Their maniples wheeled about at intervals from one another. The more brilliant Carthaginian weapons encircled them like golden crowns. There was a swarming movement in the center, and the sun, striking down upon the points of the swords, made them glitter with white, flickering gleams. However, files of Clinabarians lay stretched upon the plain. Some mercenaries snatched away their armor, clothed themselves in it, and then returned to the fray. The deluded Carthaginians were several times entangled in their midst. They would stand stupidly motionless, or else would back, surge again, and triumphant shouts rising in the distance seemed to drive them along like derelicts in a storm. Hamilcar was growing desperate. All was about to perish beneath the genius of Matho and the invincible courage of the mercenaries. But a great noise of tambourines burst forth on the horizon. It was a crowd of old men, sick persons, and children of 15 years of age, and and even women, who, being unable to withstand their distress any longer, had, had set out from Carthage, and for the purpose of placing themselves under the protection of something formidable, had taken from Hamilcar's palace the only elephant that the Republic now possessed, that one, namely, whose trunk had been cut off. Then it seemed to the Carthaginians that their country, forsaking its walls, was coming to command them to die for her. They were seized with increased fury, and the Numidians carried away all the rest. The barbarians had set themselves with their backs to a hillock in the center of the plain. They had no chance of conquering, or even of surviving. But they were the best, the most intrepid, and the strongest. The people from Carthage began to throw spits, larding pins, and hammers over the heads of the Numidians. Those whom consuls had feared died beneath sticks hurled by women. The Punic populace was exterminating the mercenaries. The latter had taken refuge on the top of the hill. Their circle closed up after every fresh breach. Twice it descended to be immediately repulsed with a shock, and the Carthaginians stretched forth their arms pell-mell, thrusting their spikes between the legs of their companions and raking at random before them. They slipped in the blood. The steep slope of the ground made the corpses roll to the bottom. The elephant, which was trying to climb the hillock, was up to its belly. It seemed to be crawling over them with delight, and its shortened trunk, which was broad at the extremity, rose from time to time like an enormous leech, Then all paused. The Carthaginians ground their teeth as they gazed at the hill where the barbarians were standing. At last, they dashed at them abruptly, and the fight began again. The mercenaries would often let them approach, shouting to them that they wished to surrender, and then, with frightful sneers, they would kill themselves at a blow. And as the dead fell, the rest would mount upon them to defend themselves. It was a kind of pyramid which grew larger by degrees— Soon there were only fifty, then only twenty, only three, and lastly only two, a Samnite armed with an axe, and Matho, who still had his sword. The Samnite, with bent ham swept his axe alternately to the right and left, at the same time warning Matho of the blows that were being aimed at him. Master, this way, that way, stoop down! Matho had lost his shoulder pieces, his helmet, his queer ass, he was completely naked and more livid than the dead, with his hair quite erect, and two patches of foam at the corners of his lips. And his sword whirled so rapidly that it formed an aureola around him. A stone broke it near the guard. The Samnite was killed, and the flood of Carthaginians closed in. They touched Matho. Then he raised both his empty hands towards heaven, closed his eyes, and opening out his arms like a man throwing himself from the summit of a promontory into the sea, hurled himself among the pikes. They moved away before him. Several times he ran against the Carthaginians, but they always drew back and turned their weapons aside. His foot struck against a sword. Matho tried to seize it. He felt himself tied by the wrists and knees and fell. Narhavas had been following him for some time, step by step, with one of the large nets used for capturing wild beasts, and taking advantage of the moment when he stooped down, had involved him in it. Then he was fastened on the elephants, with his four limbs forming a cross, and all those who were not wounded escorted him and rushed with great tumult towards Carthage. The news of the victory had arrived in some inexplicable way at the third hour of the night. The Clepsydra of Camon had just completed the fifth as they reached Malqua, and then Matho opened his eyes. There were so many lights in the houses that the town appeared to be all in flames. An immense clamor reached him dimly, and lying on his back he looked at the stars. Then a door closed, and he was wrapped in darkness. On the morrow, at the same hour, the last of the men left, and the pass of the hatchet expired. On the day that their companions had set out, some Zuakes, who were returning, had tumbled the rocks down, and had fed them for some time. The barbarians constantly expected to see Matho appear, and from discouragement, from languor, and from the obstinacy of sick men who object to change their situation, they would not leave the mountain. At last the provisions were exhausted, and the Zuakes went away. It was known that they numbered scarcely more than 1,300 men, and there was no need to employ soldiers to put an end to them. Wild beasts, especially lions, had multiplied during the three years that the war had lasted. Narhavas had held a great battue, and, after tying goats at intervals, had run upon them and so driven them towards the pass of the hatchet, and they were now all living in it, when a man arrived who had been sent by the ancients to find out what there was left of the barbarians. Lions and corpses were lying over the tract of the plain and the dead were mingled with clothes and armor. Nearly all had the face or an arm wanting. Some appeared to be still intact. Others were completely dried up, and their helmets were filled with powdery skulls. Feet, which had lost their flesh, stood out straight from the canemides. Skeletons still wore their cloaks, and bones cleaned by the sun made gleaming spots in the midst of the sand. The lions were resting with their breasts against the ground, and both paws stretched out, winking their eyelids in the bright daylight, which was heightened by the reflection from the white rocks. Others were seated on their hindquarters and staring before them, or else were sleeping, rolled into a ball and half-hidden by their great manes. They all looked well-fed, tired, and dull. They were as motionless as the mountain and the dead. Night was falling. The sky was striped with broad red bands in the west. In one of the heaps, which, in an irregular fashion, embossed the plain, something rose up, vaguer than a specter. And then one of the lions set himself in motion, his monstrous form cutting a black shadow on the background of the purple sky. And when he was quite close to the man, he knocked him down with a single blow of his paw. Then, stretching himself flat upon him, he slowly drew out the entrails with the edge of his teeth. Afterwards, he opened his huge jaws and for some minutes uttered a lengthened roar which was repeated by the echoes in the mountain and was finally lost in the solitude. Suddenly, some small gravel rolled down from above. The rustling of rapid steps was heard. And in the direction of the portcullis and of the gorge there appeared pointed muzzles and straight ears, with gleaming, tawny eyes. These were the jackals coming to eat what was left. The Carthaginian, who was leaning over the top of the precipice to look, went back again. That was chapter 14 of Salambo by Gustave Flaubert. The next chapter is the last one. Thank you so much for listening to this uh, absolutely brutal chapter. And I hope you stick with me to hear the very end of the story next time. I'm Eli. I'll see you then.
0: Planning for your next trip?